Hello and welcome to The 237 with me, Martin Law. The aim of this podcast is to act as a bit of a film school. I will be interviewing different writers, directors, producers, industry professionals who can really answer questions about how to break into the industry and how to stay in the industry. My first guest is film producer Jonathan Softcott, who over the last 10 years or so has been making a name for himself in the industry. He's made a significant amount of genre films, British gangster films and horror films through his production company, Hereford Films. His films include Vendetta with Danny Dyer, We Still Kill the Old Way, Bonded by Blood 2 and The Craze Dead Man Walking. Now a little bit about Jonathan, he started out as a teenager, he was writing articles for the horror magazine, The Dark Side magazine. And through that, he made a number of contacts and then eventually started producing interviews for DVD extras. He's interviewed a number of iconic British actors and filmmakers over the years. And then through doing that, he realized that actually he wanted to be making the films as well. So he set out to do exactly that. Jonathan is someone I've been aware of for a number of years, and he took the time out on a Sunday of all days to talk to me. So have a listen, and hopefully you can learn a thing or two. How much have you changed from when you started making feature films? Oh, completely. I mean, I've lost all my hair. I've, you know, gone to the funny farm a few times. It's, it's completely obliterated because <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of what it does. And no, I've changed completely. I mean, you know, I, I had lunch last week with um, Martin Kemp, who really is kind of an instrumental part of my becoming a film producer because he really took a chance on me. And, um, you know, we made a, a short film um, well over a decade ago and he directed it and his brother starred in it. And, um, and I produced it and we were sort of reminiscing, saying, God, it was so easy then, wasn't it? When the biggest problem we had was trying to find a location. And, you know, we made this, this little short film out of a tiny, tiny, I say office, but it was really a cupboard that we had in Charlotte Street in Soho. And, um, you know, it was it was all a learning curve. Everything is a learning curve. The, the day you stop learning in this business is, is the day you really need to give up because everything's changing and everything always does change. And the market's changing. And, you know, it's it's a. Uh, it's a real thing. I mean, I think I've become a lot more cynical. I've become a lot less trusting. Um, you know, you start with boundless enthusiasm and, and this business does does grind you down perhaps more than any other. Um, but but I've, I've not fallen out of love with movies and I've not fallen out of love with what I do. So I guess that's that's testament to either their enduring appeal or my staying power. I'm not sure which. How important do you think making short films are to eventually making a feature? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I'll be absolutely honest with you. The short film we made was always intended to be an episode in an anthology feature. But when we realised that we couldn't really get the anthology together, we said, hey, we've made a short film. And it got a kind of platform. It was a rather curious platform. We, we met this chap called Steve Lanning, um, who's been around the film industry forever, a really nice guy. And his partner was Nick Berry, the actor from Heartbeat. And, and Steve was launching this, this new platform. I guess, I mean, yeah, I'm going back 10 years. I suppose, really, it was sort of a Netflixy type venture. And it was called Ice Hole, not Arsehole, but Ice Hole. And, and, and we put the film up on that. And, you know, and it, and it was what it was. And look, I, I learned how to crew up. Um, several of the people who worked on that short film 
would end up doing stuff for me, including the art director, Ryan, who ended up directing a feature for me called Elfie Hopkins. And I suppose, but, but it was it was pretty simple. I mean, you know, we sort of cast it with not mates. I mean, Martin's brother played the lead and that, that was great. I mean, to, you know, on your first short film to have an actor as good as Gary Kemp was a real privilege. Um, and um, a friend of mine, Del Silver, played his wife. And then we sort of, you know, got, got actors that friends of friends knew and that kind of stuff. Um, the, the learning curve for me came after that, which was making the first feature. So I don't know about shorts. I mean, I get sent dozens, probably probably a dozen a day um, from filmmakers saying, look at my short film. Um, and, and the thing that always surprises me most about them is, is how poor the acting um, and the scripts are. You know, the, the, the one thing I say to filmmakers all the time is you have to have good actors and they don't cost any more than bad ones. And it, and it really does surprise me that. But on the other hand, I, I've totally seen shorts um, and, and said to them, the guys, look, this is so good. You have to come and do a feature. Really good example of that is Stephen Reynolds, who wrote and directed Vendetta, um, who sent me a, a short film called The Snowman, which was about an albino vigilante. Um, it was all set in Coventry or somewhere. And, and it was just so cinematic. You know, it was so, so, so cinematic. And it was so obvious that he could do it. And, and within six months of him sending me that, he'd written four of the Essex Boys for me and he was on the way to directing Vendetta. So, yes, they are really important, but they have to be really good. Um, and, and I think it's very, very easy for people to fall into a trap of making short film after short film after short film and never making a feature. But that's because I'm one of those insidious, overly commercial producers who just wants to make films that make money. I'm sure if you if you just want to make films for the sake of making films, it's a great idea. But I'm not really the person to talk to about that. Just going back to what you were saying about obviously being sent all those short films, even now today, how many kind of people do you get on Twitter and social media and so on who do literally send you shorts or scripts i mean what that, that must be kind of a lot for you i i think we probably get around 100 submissions a week through through different things um i mean with actors it's much more and you know the biggest problem is with the type of movie that i make um you know the, the gangster movies and all that kind of stuff is that every fucking scaffolder with a shaved head thinks that this is their opportunity to become the new danny dyer so they all send me messages on instagram going hey john what about giving us a part of one of your films <laughs> and and it's not really what i want but you know I, and I, I always try and reply politely and say you know you have to apply for casting through spotlight but but it's yeah i mean look, it's great the internet there's no dispute in the fact that lots of good stuff comes our way but there's a lot of crap as well and i, and I think i mean even if you just look at the hair of films twitter page it's kind of obvious what type of movies we make um, but that doesn't stop me being deluged with, you know, absolute nonsensical crap, particularly from abroad. I, my my favourite um, thing I've ever been sent was something about a killer toilet that eats people. Um, and I was just I was speechless, you know. It's one of those things where you kind of forward it to all your other producer mates going, guys, I think I've hit a new low. Um <laughs> Because that was pretty bad. But, you know, we, we do read everything. And, and nine times out of ten, we try really hard to reply because it's important. And I think it's terribly bad manners in this business when no one replies. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's difficult sometimes. And sometimes you can sense the people who aren't going to take no for an answer and just going to keep resending you the same thing again and again and again. Um, but, uh, but Adam, who works for me, um, gets the lucky job of dealing with those people. So, um well, I was going to say, I think I think on the Hereford Films website, your production company, I think at the moment it actually says that, um, unfortunately, you're not accepting unsolicited material. Yeah, but, but, I'm guessing... but no, no, no one pays a blind bit of notice for that. So. Yeah, well, I was going um, to ask you, is that basically having that on there? Is that because of um, you get so much crap that you just don't have the time to go through it? Or is it more a case of, because there's a lot of people out there who will kind of say that you've stolen their idea. Yeah, in reality, yeah, it's, that it's, hasn't it's, happened. It's, it's, it's a legal thing, really. Um, I mean, you know, look, 
we live in a world now where you have to have a legal policy, a GDPR policy, all those kind of things, both, both of which we have on our website. Um, and yeah, people will say that, 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 you know, oh, well, I have that. I mean, the amount of people I've met who have said, well, you know, that film Reservoir Dogs, that could have been, I'm using that as a, a generic example, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and the fact is there's only so many ideas that are, that are actually out there. Um, but, you know, unsolicited only means not sent through an agent. Um, and, you know, we, we do get stuff for it. We, we, we get, I'd say we probably get 20% through agents and 80% without agents. And, you know, therein lies the problem for a filmmaker of if you haven't made a film or you haven't written something that's trendy, how do you find an agent? Because literary agents, I think, are even harder to come by than acting agents. And, and to be honest with you, it, it means, all, although there are lots of agents who I have great relationships with, I don't judge someone on whether or not they don't have an agent. Um, that, that really doesn't matter to me at all. Um, so, so have there been examples of things that have been sent, you know, one of the 100 in a week that's managed to, you know, it's been read by Adam or somebody in, on the team and then actually you've decided to buy it or go with it and, and make it? Is there anything in, in your works that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think Vendetta is a really good example of that. Um, oh, no, that was, sorry, that wasn't a script, was it? Um, what have we options that came in through that way? Um... I mean, I, think, I guess the reason I'm, I'm asking these questions are because obviously, like I said, there are plenty of people out there who've written a script and I'm sure it is kind of annoying on your end. Um, but I can kind of see it from these aspiring so, filmmakers. So, point so, of can view. I, so can I. I'll, I'll tell you the best bit of advice for writers who send stuff in is send us a script, but send us a one page. Because I can tell you immediately from a one page whether or not I need to read the script for, for us. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's hard with, with, with scripts. Um, you know, it, 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 they, they do change quite quite dramatically um, sometimes because you start reading two pages and then suddenly it's a, a Western set on the moon and it's not really right for us. So that's 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 sort of one way of looking at it. Um, I'll, I'll give you a different example, though, of someone. Someone sent me, um, writer called Simon Cluett, um, sent me a script that I'd optioned, which was a, a post-apocalyptic version of Mask of the Red Death. Bit, bit random. And obviously it never went anywhere. But off the back of that, I then got him to write Age of Kill and Bonded by Blood 2 and We Still Still the Old Way. Um, so it wasn't what he sent in, but what he sent in was definitely good enough that I thought, you know, here's someone that we can, we can use. Um, and that's a fairly regular occurrence. Um, yeah, so you saw the talent in what he could write, basically. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, you know, going back to Stephen Reynolds, the, the first thing I gave him off the back of Snowman wasn't a directing gig, it was writing for all of the Essex Boys. Um, and I, I actually pushed quite hard for him to direct that, but the distributor who was funding it wasn't, you know, wasn't keen on the first timer, which I can't blame him for at all, because it's it's always a risk, you know. I mean, I I, I think um, I think Vendetta was definitely the right movie for him to um, to do, because it became his kind of signature movie, and, and he got some good jobs off the back of that. I mean, that's the thing about this game, is that, you know, People have to do that that one job to lead to another, to lead to another, to lead to another. You always have to keep moving up or moving forward. And even even with the short films, for example, then, that people might send you, do you ever watch anything and think, oh, yeah, I don't really like the film, but actually the cinematography is amazing. Who's that? You yeah, know, abs absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was just, I was just watching something um, yesterday, which I, I mean, I can't tell you what it was because it would be unfair, but but I thought the the direction, the visual effects was stunning, but the acting was terrible. And, and you know, it was obviously something that had a bit of a budget, but I, I believe that the director had done the, the effects too, um, which is obviously going to be, a, you know, an advantage when you're making independent movies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely I do. And, and, and I really do try to watch everything. And I think we, we as filmmakers have a duty to, to watch everything we're sent because... You know, plenty of people gave me a chance when I was younger, so I have to try and pay that forward. Obviously, I mentioned cinematography, so I think his name's Ismail Issa, is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah, 
Yeah. So yep. he's he's done a lot of work for for you for your company on in a lot of the, the films. How yep. important is it to kind of surround yourself with familiar crew? Really, really, really important. I mean, you you have to depend on the people you work with ultimately. Um, and and Ishmael is a really good example of that. So after um on after the fall of the Essex Boys um and White Collar Hooligan, I was using a DOP called Hader. Um, and he shot Vendetta. And he shot Top Dog and he was great. Um, he really, really great. But he wanted to go and direct, you know, as often happens. That's often the journey that DOPs have. So when we were making the first We Still Kill the Old Way, Neil Jones, who was my line producer, came to me and said, look, I've shot this film um, in Spain and I've got this really great Spanish DOP. And I immediately went, Spanish DOP? How can we possibly afford to fly him over? And, and he, he explained to me how we could. And, and he came and he was great. You know, he's absolutely terrific. And he ended up shooting We Still Steal and Modern Blood Blood 2 and Age of Kill and, and all these other movies. And, you know, it's very important to know your your going to get a finished product that, that is up to the standards you want when you're using people on a regular basis. And, you know, yeah, I, I really believe in it. You know, I grew up studying these kind of, you know, filmmaking companies, Roger Corman, Hammer, um, all these, these kind of business that relied on a sort of, you know, if, if you want to be cynical, a factory atmosphere, if you want to be generous, a family atmosphere. And, and actually the truth of it is probably somewhere in the middle, a family that worked at a factory. And that, that's always the model that I've tried to sort of replicate. How difficult is getting a film distributed? And I think I read somewhere where one of your films, or, or at least one, there's probably been more than one, that it was pre-sold. So what does that mean exactly? And how does how did that work? Okay, so so let's talk through the basic distribution model, which is that you, you make your film and then you sell it to a distributor. I mean, when, when we're talking about a distributor now, we're talking about a UK distributor. So that is the person who releases your movie either to the cinema, to, to home entertainment, physical home entertainment, DVD and Blu-ray, or digital, which is iTunes, Amazon, Netflix, all those, all those kind of things, um, and they either um, they either pay you in advance, which is best thought of as the way that a writer gets an advance against sales for a book. And once they've broken even on all their costs, they then revenue share with you, or profit share with you, or that you go straight into the profit share model with them. So they still put up the costs, you know, because releasing a movie is not expensive. I mean, you know, all the advertising um, and promotion does does cost money those, those are the two kind of regular models and when you pre-sell a film it means i i turn up at a distributor's office with a poster maybe a script and some cast ideas and say look i've got this project i want to make um it's going to cost x will you advance me y against the uk rights and then they either say yes here's a check or okay here's a contract which you can take to a bank and you know essentially borrow the money against both still work. Both models still work. What's happened um, that's been quite dramatic in the last sort of five or six years is that the UK distribution landscape for, for the independent sector has changed horrifically. I mean, there have been so many casualties and really big names. You know, Revolver, Metrodome and Anchor Bay UK are three distributors who have disappeared. And to be honest with you, they were the three kind of key indie distributors, certainly in my space. Metrodome and Revolver both went bust. Revolver essentially because they were spending more than they were earning. Metrodome because they were using the commercial stuff to prop up the art house stuff and that's only ever going to work for so long and Anchor Bay because um, the guy who owned it bought it off Stars, the big American company as, as an MBO then sold it to another company called Kaleidoscope who haven't really done anything with it which is, is a bit disappointing so, so that space is, is harder to get into now and, and obviously, you know, we all know about the decline or the perceived decline of physical media, which I don't really subscribe to as much as a lot of people do, because I see the I see the numbers um, and the numbers really aren't all that different to what they were five years ago. You know, people buy DVDs in supermarkets 
because you people you, one one of the strange things is in the in the elite bubble of London, people have no concept of DVD anymore because there's nowhere for them to buy it. With the closure of HMV on Bond Street, there is now nowhere on London High Street where you can buy chart DVDs. Um, so they think the game is up. But as soon as you get outside of London, there are massive Tesco's and Astor's and Sainsbury's and Morrison's, all of which have very healthy DVD charts. And the thing is, if they weren't healthy, the grocers wouldn't keep them. They'd replace those aisles with disposable barbecues or toys or video games or whatever the hell else it is they sell. Um, so, so physical media does still work, but it's incredibly selective. What was the budget for the craze film that you made last year? Well, it was incredibly low. Um, I mean, incredibly low, you know, um, I mean, it was it was five figures, not six, put it that way. And and it sold very well. You know, it, 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 it did pretty much it did, put it this way. The crazed dead man walking last year did better business on DVD than Bonded by Blood 2 did a year before. Um, not not dramatically different, but it, it still did better. And what was the difference in budget? Was Bonded by Blood 2 a lot yeah, bigger? Bond, Bonded by Blood 2 cost 300 and something grand. Um, you know, it was completely different. Now, look, The Craze was a one-off because it's very rare that you can make a period gangster movie that's basically all set in one room. Um, and, and also, I didn't think it was a particularly good film. Um, but it showed, you know, from a business point of view, the graph showing the sales was really not all that different. Um, and also, I'm pretty sure they spent more money on the marketing for... Um, Bonded by Blood 2 as well. So, so, so the market for those type of movies is not there. What has changed, however, is that even when Bonded by Blood 2 came out, there were an awful lot of these movies still being made, and now there are less and less. So when one comes along, such as The Craze, obviously it's, you know, the people who love those movies are going to buy it. But, but over the last three or four years, although there have been less, the ones that have come along have all done really well. You know, the Hatton Garden job um, with Larry Lamb, which was directed by Ronnie Thompson, sold over 100,000 units at full price. Rise of the Foot Soldier 3, um, the, the Zach Adler one, um, is or was, it may still be, the, the most watched, most bought premium VOD title in this country of all time. You know, forget the Marvel, Rise of the Foot Soldier 3 is the one. Um, right. and, and obviously it would be wrong of me to talk about someone else's VOD revenue, but, but believe me, these films are still seriously successful. Um, and, and they still sell DVDs. You know, I mean, Brotherhood, the Noel Clark movie, you know, which, which follows yep. um, kiddohood and um, another, uh, not anotherhood, you know, the other one, adulthood. Um, you know, that, that was phenomenal. So, so I, I really do think that you know the future is bright in our in our sector, um, but but it doesn't make for very interesting headlines to say, oh, you know, DVD's still selling really well in certain areas. People would much rather say, well, HMV's gone bust. You know, the game's up um, because we do delight in negativity. So, um, and, I, and with bu- with budgets, then kind of like what you've just said there about the craze film from from last year that had a five figure budget let's say let's say eighty thousand, and then you mentioned Bonded by Blood two for three hundred and fifty. So, I mean, you could make four films for the price of one i mean is, you absolutely is it, could you absolutely from a could. business point of view is is it is it kind of less risk to make cheaper films or would you rather put more money into something that you've then in your head think yeah this could be you know a, a huge dvd sale for us well after the craze i i was in exactly that position i could have gone down one or two paths because you know the craze was kind of an experiment on my part to answer the question i've just explained which was to see if you could still make one of these films and make it a success on dvd and the answer was definitely yes um and if a film like i say that i really i'm not proud of that film i mean you know i i know which films i made are good and which ones are bad and that's definitely in the latter category 
Um, and it still worked. You know, it still works. There's still a massive fan base for it. And I thought, you know, we can go out churning out these things for ages or we can actually make really quality genre films for this this audience, you know, which they'll appreciate and appreciate in greater numbers. And when I was first a film producer, there was this terrible, horrible trend um, where distributors, after, after um, there, was, there was a film called City Rats with Danny Dyer and Tam Hassan. It was a decent little film, little anthology drama. But Revolver, the distributor who I mentioned earlier, picked it up for God knows how little money and stuck a cover on it that made it look like the business too. You know, Danny and Tamar, who have no scenes in the movie, stuck together, holding guns, black and white, red. Yeah. And, and, they, and it sold hundreds of thousands of DVDs. And it kick-started this awful trend of, of badging up any Danny Dyer movie as a gangster movie. So, I mean, I, I, I have the best example of it. I made this, this comedy feature about the film industry um, called Just For The Record with, with Rick Mail. I mean, it's, it's a film with fucking Rick Mail. And... Um, Sean Pertwee, Colin Salmon. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a terrible film, but it has some really good cast and some funny bits in it. And Metrodome picked it up and stuck it out as a black, white and red cover with a picture of Dyer on the front from an old film and a picture of Craig Fairbrass. And it said, get in on the action or you'll get cut. Um, and and, and, I, and I, I went mad. I was like, guys, are you serious? What are you thinking? Um, like, well, that's what sells. Um, so, so I got as far as convincing them that um, we could have a reversible cover. And if you're unfortunate enough to buy that DVD and you take the cover out, the other side of it does actually present it as a comedy. Um, but, but, but of course, you know, no one, no one cared and we ended up getting the blame for it. But it happened again and again and again. I mean, yeah, I did, I did a quite a big budget zombie movie that Dyer was in and, and Craig again. Um, and and they, they stuck it out. It was called Devil's Playground. And they stuck it out with a cover, Dyer and Fairbrass, back to back with hammers and crowbars. You know, no, no mention of zombies anywhere. So, so I, I think there's a real danger that if you pull the wool over the public's eyes too much, they get sick and tired of the product. And I think some people were disappointed with the Craze film. A lot of people were disappointed with the Craze film. Some people loved it. I mean, you know, people came up to me at the screening. I, an authorist friend of mine called Kimberly Chambers, who's a Sunday Times number one bestseller, told me it's the best film I've ever done. I said, Kimberly, are you drunk? Um, but, you know, some people really did, did enjoy it. Um, it got four stars in the, in the Sunday Mail. I couldn't believe it. I thought they must have pressed the wrong button. Um, but, but um, you know, the, the, I think rather than making a cheap product and making it look like an expensive one, I'd rather go back to making really good films that really deliver. Um, and, and we know the market's there for them. Um, and, and the projects that we're kind of developing quite heavily at the minute are all in that sort of space. I mean, you know, it would be really easy to make a really cheap sequel to We Still Kill the Old Way. Um, but I was I was disappointed with the second movie, um, very disappointed. And I, and I want to make a third one that's as good as the first one, if not better, which is why it's taking a while to get together. I mean, we, we must have been through 20 drafts of the script um, with at least half a dozen different writers. So, so I do care about these things. I mean, I know I often come across as just a completely commercial arsehole who, who only cares about money but actually I, I do care about these films because i love films and that's why i'm doing this i think i read that you also weren't totally happy with bonded by blood 2 is that right well I, it's, it's difficult with bonded by blood 2 um because i think it's a very good film and i really admire the director greg um but in retrospect i'm not entirely convinced he was the best director for the project and that's not to take anything away from his ability or his his creativity because he's you know, he's an incredibly talented filmmaker who is very true to himself. But Bonded by Blood 2 was kind of a bit of a plodding drama. I mean, of all the films I've made, it's it's definitely the most realistic. I mean, you know, it's a group of horrible people fighting over 20 grand in a car park in Essex. You know, that's what gangsters are actually like in this country. Yeah, to be um, honest, that's why I liked the film. I yeah. thought it was a strong film. Like the guy who played Dean, I thought was fantastic. 
and yeah, I thought it was probably one of you, you, your best films in terms of acting and so on. You know. Yeah, no, it, it really, it really, I, I agree with you. I think it is, and but but I think the problem is, you, you, you don't get Ken Loach to direct Rise of the Foot Soldier, um, and and I think Greg will take that as a compliment, which is absolutely meant as, um, you know, and, and and he did bring a completely different dimension to it. But but what where where that misfired, and this is, this is my failing and my failing alone, is that the, the Foot Soldier audience, which is that audience, they want a film with people going you fucking slag and you know all that kind of stuff, and it's not that kind of film. It's actually quite an intelligent drama. Yeah, I mean, again, I was going to go back to the distribution side of things because on the front of the poster, you've obviously got the kind of protagonist from Rise of the Foot Soldier, and in reality, he's not in that many scenes. So, no, with, no ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, and that, and that was very much a marketing decision. You know, when I when I was told that Terry would be the the front and centre star of it, I, I did say, but guys, he's only got about three minutes of screen time. Um, but you know, I, I get it. I mean, the, one of the things that people do misunderstand is that, um, you know, I, I get people criticizing me all the time saying you never give new actors a chance. You just use the same old faces. And the fact of the matter is retail works like that. Retail works on comfort. If, if the buyers for the supermarkets see four or five familiar faces on the cover, then they're going to go, okay, that's a proper film. We'll take that. And it's exactly the same with the public. They see, you know, those, those faces that they recognize from a genre, they go, oh, it's a proper film. It's not one of these shit films masquerading. As, as a proper film. Um, and, you know, we, we, we had some lovely actors in, in Bonded by Blood too. You know, George Russo is, is a terrific actor. Um, and, um, you know, Sam Strike um, was great. But, but the fact of the matter is, you know, they, they did put, um, you know, Terry, Terry front and centre in a still from the original Bonded by Blood, holding a machine gun, which is not in the film. And, you know, these, these I'm, I'm actually looking at the DVD while we're talking about it. Because I haven't looked at it for a while, and, and they're all holding these bloody plastic machine guns, which which I had bought a job lot of um, the year before, and and the photographer came into the studio and said, "Oh, why don't we use those?" Um, it does look like they're about to invade a small island on the um, on the cover. So um, when 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 they when they have these ideas, then do they kind of have to run it by you or not? Is it kind of completely? up to them because obviously that is distribution is different but at the same time it's it's to sell the film and it's your film so it's, it's strange yeah, one, isn't it i'll tell you how it works see this is the thing because there, there are things i've really fought hard for um and ultimately the person who decides or, or what decides what the covers look like is the feedback from the retailers um so so the distributor will mock up four or five different artworks they send them into retail and retail says yeah we like that no we don't like that and I mean, to be honest with you, I think Bonded by Blood 2 had the worst artwork of probably any film I've ever done. Um, I think it looks cheap, tacky, garish. There's nothing good about it at all. Um, but that's what retail feedback they wanted. Um, so, so I couldn't really argue with that, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Um, you know, so you, I, have I, to, you have to basically go with it then. So it, obviously for your next film, for example, you are still going to use the same distributor because obviously they are interested they're giving you money so, and that's that's completely fair enough you know that's how you make films you need the money so you've got to use the same people is that right yeah yeah i mean you have to make sacrifices and and you know we can't all be happy but but there have been other occasions that i i, I hated the artwork for the essex boys i re- which is a very similar film or well, it's not a similar film you know creatively but it's, it's in the same space i hated that artwork i thought it looked cheap and tacky and awful it's just you know picture of a Range Rover with a load of hooligans running around there, but it but it sold hundreds of thousands of DVDs. So they were right, and I was wrong. I, I think I just I just wanted Bonded by Blood two to look a bit more 
epic, I suppose, um, or a bit a bit classier, really. You know, I think I think we set the bar quite high with the artwork for Vendetta, and obviously the similar artwork for We Still Kill the Old Way and, and Age of Kill, and then Bonded by Blood Two just looks like the kind of you know the 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 awkward cousin that no one wants to talk to at the family gathering. Going back to essentially selling your film to a distributor when you sell a film are you are you getting like double three times the budget back is it a good profit or is it well the mod the model i've always tried to to, to or i've developed not always tried to but is is that you cover your costs with the uk and then the rest of the world is the profit now that that sounds like some kind of spectacular return but the fact is a lot of these films work really well in the uk but don't really travel you know the one thing i hear time and time again is that my stuff is too British. Uh, it used to be that, that Germany would be worth 50% of the UK, but the, the market there has declined to a degree. Australia, you know, is, is a good territory, but it's worth nothing because it's so small. Um, and sometimes you get an American release, but I, I can honestly say of all the films I've had released in America, only one of them has actually gone into to overages. Um, so, you know, that's that's normally how that, that kind of works. Um, what, what has also changed is that because of the lack of distributors, getting the big advances for the UK has become harder, but, but certainly not impossible. But also, you know, don't always be hooked on the advance because sometimes you can get enough money back to cover your, um, your costs. But are you ever going to see a profit out of it? That's always the, the distribution conundrum. These, these British genre films are not theatrical. There is no theatrical market for them whatsoever. And from time to time, filmmakers come to and say, why can't I have a release of the pictures? And I say, because no one's going to go and see it, you know. But I, I have four kids. We go to the cinema to see what they want to see. Because, you know, you, you go and see Marvel, Star Wars, DC, The Meg, Godzilla, all those all those blockbusters. Because going to the cinema is bloody expensive. Um, and you want bang for your buck. You don't want to go and spend 50 quid going and seeing something that's going to be six quid in Asda four weeks later. That is just simple economics. Um and, you know, we all have big enough TVs at home that we can enjoy the cinema experience as much as, as my type of films can give it. You know, who, who the hell would want to go and see We Still Kill the Old Way in iSense, you know, or IMAX? You just wouldn't, would you? Um, I think Tarantino I, might. Tarantino might, because obviously he's a big cinema person. But again, I think it's for him, it's all about being shot on film as well. So the difference between film and digital, again, is huge. And it's, it's a... It's a it's a monetary thing, isn't it? It's all about oh, it's, budget. It's, it's huge. It is. And, you know, one of my best friends is Nick Moran, who, who you know, everyone knows as a star of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, but he's also a very talented director. He did uh, The Kid and Telstar. And he, tomorrow he starts filming uh, Creation Stories or Creation Tales, which is the film about Alan McGee and Creation Records. And every time Nick and I talk about doing a film, he says, right, I've got this great idea to shoot it on film. I'm like, Nick, no, stop. Handbrake immediately. No, but I've got this great idea. There's, there's a guy in Poland that's got loads of stock. Like, no, 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 Nick, stop. This is, this is the constant argument that we have. And I know you just tried to get him to shoot this creation thing on film as well. And, and I get it. Nick is a passionate and dedicated filmmaker, but I've never shot a, a movie on celluloid and I have no intention of ever doing it um, because, you know, I don't believe that in the films I make, it makes a damn bit of difference apart from the cost and the logistics, um, both of which would be negative. So, um, you know, and yeah, sure. Tarantino. I mean, look, if, 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 if Tarantino wants to watch my film in the cinema, I'll let on a private screening for him, no problem. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but you know, it's, it's different, you know, and, and the thing is, he, you know, films that, that he is a big champion of, and thank God there are people like him in the industry, have become cult films over a very long time. They weren't cult films when they were made, and, you know, the, the films that I grew up watching, the, the British films, The Hammers, The Carry-Ons, all those things they were absolutely scorned and derided in their day you know they all got one star reviews and the critics gave them you know absolutely hated them just like they do my stuff now 
and and slowly but surely some of my things i'm particularly the we still kill the old ways are becoming these kind of cult movies um and that, that's a very gratifying thing because you know the, the kind of films i make you don't expect any kind of mainstream um praise for them i mean like i say when that the, the mail on sunday gave that craze film four-star review I, I nearly died of a heart attack just completely unexpected and, and that's fine because you know i make films that people want to see not films that get four-star reviews and, and laurels yeah i mean there are obviously some british directors you know like even andre arnold or even shane meadows and if they you know if you met them and they pitched an idea to you but you just knew it wasn't going to make money unfortunately you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't do it would you because at the no. end they you're part of a business no, absolutely, and and I mean, it, it wasn't either of those two, but but a filmmaker of similar, not dissimilar standing to them, um, brought a film to me maybe five years ago. I presume everyone else had turned him down, um, and it was kind of a, it was it was a good script, um, and it was sort of a female version of um, no, it wasn't really a female version, female skewed version of Vendetta. Um, it was pretty good, and I met him and his um, production partner couple of times and I was kind of up for it and then he told me the whole thing had to be in Romanian language and, and, and I said why he said well because they're Romanians and I said, yeah but no one's everyone's no that just doesn't work um, <laughs> you know for me and, and I'm sure it, I mean, he, it's never been made but I'm sure if it had it would have been a good film but no one would have gone to see it so what's the point in making it the, the hardest part of making these films is obviously getting the money you know, particularly if, if it's not done through distribution and sales agents and you have to raise the money privately, that can take an incredibly long time, you know, and painfully. And, and you know, there are a lot of people, it's a very strange thing about the film business in this country, maybe not just in this country, but it does attract these people who pretend they have money and they want to invest and actually they're just tire kickers messing you around. Um, you know, I mean, it happened to me a long, long, long time ago for the first time. So I'm kind of used to it by now you know the the when i was talking about earlier um the film with martin kemp when i first met him that fell apart the guy who was um who was funding it was a, a self-styled greek shipping magnet who would walk down knightsbridge with me and point out all these buildings that he owned but of course he didn't know any of them he never had any money and, and you kind of think why do you put yourself and and everyone else through this but it happens all the time and it's just it's just part of the game you know and maybe it happens in other businesses i don't know but there seems to be something about film that's particularly magnetic for these these people, um, you know, the, the other thing that's, that's changed dramatically, dramatically in the last couple of months, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with them. Do you know about the Enterprise Investment Scheme, EIS? No, I don't think I do. OK, so the Enterprise Investment Scheme is a, is a government scheme. Um, it's in its 20th year now. Um, and it's, it's a scheme to encourage um, investors to invest in um, high risk business, one of which is film. And, and essentially what happens is um, the, the investor can write off 30% of their investment against their income tax. So, so their, their, their risk is obviously automatically reduced by 30% and they get certain other benefits as well, all of which are similar. There's no capital gains tax on um, profits. And last year, the government pulled film production out of the EIS scheme. Now, this is a, this is a quiet crisis at the minute in the film industry. Um, but it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I, I suspect if you look at the numbers this time next year, you'll see an 80 to 90 percent drop off in independent film production under three million pounds. Um, obviously, the industry doesn't want to scream about it because it's kind of a way of saying we're toxic, we're toxic. Um, but it's a really, really big problem. Um, and, and now the, 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 the new rules for EIS are that investors can invest into film production company overheads. I mean, who the hell wants to invest in that? You know, we all get accused of being fat cats having posh lunches enough as it is. So why, why would they want to encourage that? Yeah. Um, so, so that's going to become a really, a really, really big problem. Um, I, you know, I mean, some of us are working on, 
alternative structures, um, but obviously they have to be regulated. So um, that's that's taking a while as well. So that's the boring bit is waiting around for the money. Um, and for you personally, how easy is it to raise money? For example, um, one of your upcoming films, Reckoning Day, um, yeah. which you, you've not filmed yet. I mean, how, how easy was it to to get money? Like, obviously, your name, Jonathan Sofcott, is, you know, on all your films. It is a name that's, in, you know, well-known in the industry now. So can you just go to someone and say, I've got this new film, and, and they just automatically give it to you, or is it still very tricky for you? All, all depends on the film and the budget level. Um, I mean, yeah, look, it has some weight. I mean, no one cares about my name, but they care about my CV. And obviously, you know, I, I do have some some good films on it because um, I've taken all the bad ones off. Um, and, 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 and a track record of sales obviously helps. Um, you know, I mean, my, my films have sold over a million DVDs in this country. So that's that's not a bad statistic to bandy around. Um but, it, but it's all about finding the right people. I mean, one of the things that I, I am quite proud of is that I do have quite a lot of return investors, um, you know, people that come back again and again, private guys. But even these low budgets, you know, if you're putting them together kind of five or ten grand at a time, which is certainly how we finance Vendetta, um, it, it takes a while. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and without the, the tax breaks, then it's, it's harder and harder, um, you know, because people aren't as excited as that. I think people like to invest into something official, not something unofficial, quite rightly. Um, and that's that's why people are working on sort of smart alternatives. Um, I should say there's a reason why they pulled film production out of um, out of the EIS, which is basically what would happen is um, uh, people producers would come to investors and say, look, you get 30 percent off of your um, tax. We also get a thing in this country called the film producers tax credit, which is uh, sort of 18 to 20 percent rebate at the end of the film. So that's 50 percent covered if you give your tax credit to the investor. And then if you were to do pre-sales of 50%, then that would be their entire investment, you know, mitigated against risk. And yeah. of course, then, then it's not high risk at all, is it? So, so, so HMRC are thinking, well, why should we get people um, to have tax relief on what's essentially a, a secured loan? So I understand why they've done it, but I think they've done it in a very cack-handed way. Um, and, you know, the problem is obviously the government don't really understand the film business because most people don't. So they do need to, to come up with some kind of alternative, um, you know, themselves rather than, than sort of the, the onus being on us. Because I do believe they have a duty to um, encourage domestic production. And, you know, you read all these wonderful figures about the British film industry being worth this billion and that billion. But actually, that's what the industry whereby we service American films is worth, you know. Um, none of the money that Star Wars makes comes back into this country. They just make it at Pinewood with British crews because we're cheaper and they get a tax rebate. Jonathan Sofcott, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And sorry if I waffled on too much. Any opportunity you have to work, work. Any work you can create for yourself, create it. Because... No one's going to hand out free passes.